Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. series that we are calling Following Jesus in the Wilderness. So the Gospel of Luke will be our guide in this series, and in particular, chapters 9 through 19. So Luke's Gospel covers a lot of ground in the life of Jesus. It starts with the supernatural conception of Jesus, and you could say it ends with the supernatural ascension of Jesus. So that's quite a big span, and yet within Luke's Gospel, uh, there is a 10-chapter travelogue, we'll call it. And it starts in verse 51 of chapter 9. In verse 51 of chapter 9, Luke says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and from this moment until Palm Sunday, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus and his followers are on the move. It's a theme in in Luke's Gospel. Luke wants us to understand that for ten chapters, Jesus and his disciples were on a journey. And so, in fact, like close readers of the Gospel of Luke have noticed that Jesus and his disciples are constantly moving in this section. So if you have your Bible open, actually, to chapter 9, verse 51, you can see the movement right away, just right away. It says, He sent messengers. They went on to another village as they were going along on the road, it says. Nobody is standing still. They're on a journey. And here's the thing. There are a lot of clues that Luke wants us to think of another journey in our Bibles as well. In the book of Exodus... Moses leads God's people through the wilderness to the promised land. Nobody stood still. They were on a wilderness journey. So I think Luke is telling us something important. Jesus is the new Moses. His followers are the new Israel. And in this 10 chapter travelogue, Jesus and his followers are on a journey through the wilderness a new exodus. It's as if Luke is inviting you and me on this same journey with Jesus. So for the next few months, we're going to learn what it means to follow Jesus in the wilderness. And like his disciples, we will not stand still. And this series, these next few months, will include the 40-day season of Lent. 40 days that are purposefully shaped like the 40 years in the wilderness, that are purposefully shaped like the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness. 
So let me just read, starting in verse 51, we'll wrap up in verse 62, 10 verses. The very beginning of this travel log with Jesus. This is verse 51, this is God's word. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, somebody said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and Holy Spirit, with your empowering presence, open our hearts so that we would see Jesus and worship him, that we would actually have more delight in Jesus by the time the sermon is over than when we walked into this room. Would we encounter Jesus the person, not Jesus the idea? And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, a few months ago, if you were with us, I gave you some tips on how to teach a board game. A lot of you were asking. <laughs> no, you weren't. And I told you about the importance of telling a story. Remember I said, if you really want your friends to get into this game with you, you have to tell a story and you have to allow them and invite them into this story so that they want to take part. They will have more fun. I promised you that they would have more fun. Well, I know you're asking for more advice. Um, so let me just give you one more tip. Uh, make sure to tell your friends exactly what they're getting into a board game. Every board game worth playing actually has a little thing on the side of the box that says estimated time, complexity level, how long it takes, how hard it is. And I've learned it's kind. And I've learned it's actually hospitable <laughs> to, uh, to let folks know what they're getting into. So if your friends aren't excited about like a four-hour brain burner, maybe it's you for now. Maybe it's you for now. See, when you're inviting others into something, it's kind to let them know what they're getting into. We all appreciate this. If we're invited to serve on a leadership team, it's kind to let them know in a broad sense what kind of commitment, what kind of involvement this will cost in your life, or if you've been asked to be part of a board, it's kind for them to say, hey, this is what it'll, it'll cost you. This is the cost of joining our board. This is why we have movie trailers. This is why there are dust cover summaries on big books. I never buy a book without reading the inside dust cover. How about you guys? Because that's like a 10 to 20 hour commitment I'm going to give my life to, and I can't get it back. And it's just kind of the publisher to say, this is kind of what you're going to get into if you choose this journey. 
This is why I recommend premarital counseling. I can't tell you specifically what kind of challenges and joys that any uh, engaged couple will encounter in marriage, but I can give you a broad overview of the kinds of joys and challenges that often occur within a marriage. And it's helpful and it's kind and it's wise to know in advance before you say, I do. Well, this is one of Luke's goals in chapters 9 through 19. It's a mini-manual of what it means to follow Jesus. It's like pre-discipleship counseling. It sketches this high-level map of discipleship. But it is a high-level map. It doesn't show us every specific detail that you encounter in your follow, in, when you follow Jesus. But like pre-marriage counseling, it will give you a broad picture so there are no broad surprises. Think about the last time you used Google Maps, for instance. You know how there's a plus and a minus button at the bottom? Well, when you press uh, the minus button, the map zooms out and you get the big picture. When you press the plus button, the map zooms in and you see everything. You even see maybe a street view picture of exactly what it looks like. But when you press the minus button, it's not everything that you see. But it's enough to keep you oriented. The late J.I. Packer, he compares the Apostles' Creed that we recite on Sunday mornings to a high-level map. Uh, the creed leaves out a lot of specific terrain, he says. But it gives you what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. And just as a quick plug, Starting February, our church will be starting a Sunday school once a month. And we will be teaching every phrase of, of the Apostles' Creed, just as a way uh, to orient ourselves. Might be a cool opportunity to explore Christianity if that's where you are in your spiritual journey. You just want to kind of know what Thomas Oden calls consensual Christianity, what everybody consents to. Broad, big picture map. So we'll just be work, working through that. We'll be team top with me and Aaron Badenhop, and we invite you to that. More details to come with this, but we are excited. And I think this high overview map is a helpful image for us. Uh, this 10-chapter travelogue is a kind of high-level map. Uh, it's like mere discipleship. The Apostles' Creed is mere Christianity. This sort of 10-chapter journey in Luke's Gospel of mere discipleship. Jesus tells us what to expect before we even set out on our journey with Him. What do we find out in this journey? And that's why this exists for us. So what do we find out? Well, right away, we're just looking at the very beginning of this section. And right away we find out three things. And I just want to walk through that with you guys this morning. Starting with the first thing that we notice, and that's this. That following Jesus... Is cross-shaped. That's the first thing Luke wants us to be sure we know. Is that following Jesus is cruciform or cross-shaped. And to see this, we need to back up a bit, actually, to verse 31 in chapter 9. Here we encounter the transfiguration of the transfigured Jesus, who talks to Moses and Elijah. And in verse 31, Luke tells us why. To tell them about, quote, his departure, which, was, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He says. So 
And that word departure in the Greek is literally exodus. Exodus. So let me read that verse again with that translation in mind. Some of your footnotes may show you this. Jesus was talking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Luke wants us to know that Jesus is accomplishing a new exodus, and that new exodus was going to occur in the city of Jerusalem. Remember what the first exodus accomplished, so that we can better understand what Jesus is walking towards when, it says, I'm setting, when he says, I'm setting my face towards this exodus. The first exodus, remember, accomplished judgment for Egypt and rescue for Israel and all who joined Israel. We're told Egyptians joined Israel in the exodus. A foretaste of epiphany when all the nations hear the good news of Jesus. Well, apparently, something like this, judgment and rescue, is going down in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus says to Moses and to Elijah. Moses knows something about the Exodus. So Jesus says, yeah, something like that. Something like that, Moses. It's going down. So fast forward a bit to verse 44 in chapter 9. Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of And so what we can do when we put these two pieces together is we can start to see something that's happening. The exodus, salvation, judgment event will involve a handing over of Jesus, a death of Jesus across. The exodus, salvation of God's people is going to be accomplished by a death. And that's shocking. It says in this text shortly after verse 44 that the disciples can't register how that's even possible. They were probably expecting, like many were in those days, a strong warrior uh, to lead them out from under Rome's thumb. And instead, they hear these strange predictions about a death, about Jesus' death, the Messiah. But it's in this very statement that we learn that the exodus that Jesus brings, not the exodus of our imagination, can only come through his death on a cross. And this confounds his followers, and it was hidden to his disciples, but it's of plain sight to us who live on the other side of the cross. Because we know that on that cross, like the first exodus, God brings judgment. Water does crash down. On all of our sin, but Jesus, the sinless judge, becomes judge in our place. The cross is a place of judgment. It should be ours, but it's Jesus' instead. And we also know that on that same cross, like the first Exodus, God brings rescue to all of his people. Our sin and shame is nailed to the cross and left there forever. Satan and the powers were defeated forever. If your trust is in Jesus, your old self has died with Jesus on that cross so that there is no condemnation left for you. You cannot be condemned because Jesus was condemned in your place 
And as the Apostle Paul puts it, your old self was condemned with him. And so you are free. You are no longer condemned. You are never, you are, sin no longer rules you. And this is because of, not in spite of, the death of Jesus on the cross. The new accidents. And this takes us to our passage, verse 51. It says in verse one, verse 51, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke tells us two things in one little line. Number one, the journey of Jesus ultimately leads to ascension. And that's what taken up refers to in verse 51. The moment after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, uh, he ascends to God's right hand. Luke's gospel ends with this ascension. And Luke's book of Acts, which he also wrote, begins with this ascension. And this is the victory of Jesus and the victory of all his people. And so the journey of Jesus, we have to understand, number one, from this first verse, the journey of Jesus ends and leads to victory, leads to ascension. But we also learn from the same verse that the journey of Jesus, that same journey that leads to ascension, goes straight over and through the hill of Calvary. Because Jesus says, I am setting my face like flint. An Old Testament way of talking. Toward Jerusalem. Where he will be handed over. The victorious ascension is a path that runs through the cross, not around it. Not around it. Jesus knows that our salvation, our exodus, is through the cross. Whenever my wife and I drive to Westchester, Ohio, northern Cincinnati, uh, to visit her folks, we have to drive through Mason, Ohio. Now, I'm not going to disrespect Mason, Ohio at all. I have nothing against Mason, Ohio, except it's in the way of Westchester, Ohio. And when you're cruising down 71 and you get off the Kings Island exit, you have this like stop, go, stop, go, stop, go thing in Mason. So I have this idea in my mind that if I could just sort of bypass Mason, it will somehow be an easier drive to her folks' house. And I try as I might, if I try Google Map, if I try Waze Map, if I try my Apple phone map, it always leads me through Mason. And it seems to slow us down. Well, that's the crossroad for Christians. There's just absolutely no way around it. You can't bypass it. You can't. Jesus doesn't bypass the cross. We're followers of Jesus. We can't either. There's no map in all of discipleship or all versions of discipleship. There's no map that doesn't lead through the cross. Look at verse 23, chapter 9. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So this means the cross-shaped journey in the wilderness means that we don't just benefit from the cross, but we also bear it cross. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. We benefit from the cross and we bear a cross. 
So this means a few things. Number one, we need to stop following what Aquinas Cazero calls the Americanized Jesus. In his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, he says we need to stop following this Americanized Jesus. He observes how in America the church may be Christ-centered, but it is often not cross-centered. Let's think about it. Our American story celebrates a few things. It celebrates success at all costs. It celebrates comfort above all. It celebrates self-actualization. It celebrates unqualified greatness. But if we follow Jesus as Luke presents him, we are on a path that is cross-shaped at least through a cross, at least through a cross. And the cross challenges this American story just does. The cross challenges our story of comfort at all costs. So discipleship is often uncomfortable. Following Jesus is often uncomfortable. If there is a movie preview for what it means to follow Jesus and it doesn't involve discomfort, then it is not previewing what discipleship of Jesus is for the movie. Cross the cross challenges our story of self-actualization. So discipleship is a daily death to sin and the false self that was crucified with Jesus. The cross challenges our story of success. Discipleship looks to many like losing. And the cross challenges our story of greatness. Discipleship is not greatness as the world as the world may but it is sacrifice. If discipleship of Jesus is indeed cross-shaped, then it means that sacrifice will be the tenor of our life. It means that we will lay down our life and lay down our privileges for the sake of others, flourishing all the time. And that feels like death. Amen? It feels like death. When you lay down what is rightfully yours so that others will flourish, We're following Jesus. It's precisely because we benefit from the new exodus of Jesus on the cross that we can bear a cross and lay down and do so, so following Jesus, discipleship, number one, you just learn it in his very first verse is cross-centered. Number two, following Jesus is compassion forward. Compassion forward. Look what happens at the start of their journey toward the cross. In verse 52. So he sent messengers ahead. And interesting here, that word messengers is actually angel. And we know from the Exodus story that angels were sent in advance during the Exodus. And so is Luke giving us yet another hint that what's going on here is a new Exodus? I think so. So he sent messengers ahead of him who, were, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Jesus, but the people did not receive him. Why? Because Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We, we kind of laughed. But they were sort of looking at Elijah in the Old Testament. They're like, that's what Elijah did. Can we do the same? They rejected you. We love you. They don't love you. Let's just get it over with. And what does Jesus do? He turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another road. So two things to notice here briefly. Number one, Jesus extends his welcome to those most likely to reject him. So that's just number one. We don't have all the time in the world to get into it, but suffice it to say, Samaria and Samaritan villages are very unlikely communities 
to accept and to embrace the welcome of Jesus. Anybody going to Jerusalem? Kind of like lowest on the list of most likely to warmly embrace the welcome of Jesus who's heading to Jerusalem. And guess what? They did not embrace the welcome of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. But guess what else? Jesus extends his welcome regardless. Second thing we can notice from this passage is that Jesus rebukes our, the disciples, snap judgment, we'll call it. Our snap judgment. So verse 54 tells us that James and John wanted to be like Elijah, call down fire on heaven on these folks. They wanted the Samaritan village to have it. To experience the final justice and judgment of God. Then and there. But Jesus rebuked them. Jesus stands against snap judgment from his disciples. Jesus wants them and us to know that their job, our job, is invitation. It's invitation, not final judgment. They are to lead that to God. So, so this means that following Jesus in the wilderness, in this wilderness journey, it means that we are on, as one pastor puts it, we are on a mission field, not a battlefield. We extend the welcome of Jesus. And when folks reject it, we don't get offended. We don't retaliate. We don't call forth and we judge them. But we have patience. And I think this is so important, this posture. This posture right now, as our culture becomes more and more post-Christian on the one hand, and more and more, we'll call it pugilistic or in battle at this moment. And when you combine those two things, it's this cocktail. In my observation, our neighbors and our neighborhoods and our places of work are becoming more and more like maybe the Samaritan village. They don't really want to welcome Jesus. They're not interested. And because we'll call it dominant culture Christians in America are used to being at the center of everything, we're getting testy, right? We're getting offended. We're on the margins now. We don't like that. Here's the thing. I love what Pastor Scott Sauls says. He makes the point that the church is just better on the margins. It always has been. We're so much more faithful. So let me just say, that's hope. let's extend the welcome of Jesus from the margins. It's not our job to be testy, to get offended. It's not our job to pass stamp judgment. It's not our job to do that. We are until the return of Jesus in a window of invitation. Don't expect a red carpet. And if friends of yours, family, you reject the welcome of Jesus, the Jesus you love, don't call fire from heaven in whatever version that will look like for you. That's not your job. Uh, my wife, she loves pasta plants. Who does love pasta plants? Pastas are great. I know Michelle is quite lovely. Um, you know, when I think of illustrations, actually, always the plant lovers, leave it Plants thrive, these hostas thrive on the margins. That's just what they do. They're not the center of attention. Uh, they don't need direct sunlight. 
They don't need to be affirmed by their neighbors, their plant neighbors, the crop. Um, they're actually called power perennials. Isn't that a cool word? Power perennials. And here's why. Because it seems like the harsher the conditions, the more marginalized they are, the more beautiful they become year after year after year after year. That's following Jesus in the wilderness. We're power perennials. <laughs> we're hostiles. We, we, we're, we're not plants that require constant affirmation and applause from our neighbors or our colleagues. We have the welcome of Jesus. That's all we need. We extend it to others. And I think that extension of his welcome becomes more and more authentic even as we continue to do so. So we extend the welcome of Jesus and we leave the rest of God. And that's what Jesus wants. He rebukes snap judgment. It's a good thing to listen to Jesus, by the way, because in Acts chapter 8, which Luke also offers, by the way, the same author of this gospel. Luke makes sure to record that the Samaritans, Samaritans eventually do embrace the welcome of Jesus. So later on in your own time, go to, Luke, go to Luke's uh, book of Acts, chapter 8, and notice this amazing welcome, embrace of the welcome of Jesus. And so are we glad, right, that James and John did not call fire now? following Jesus passion for him. And then finally, we learn from this passage that following Jesus is cross-shaped. It's compassion, and finally it's costly. It's costly. And for some, cost prohibitive. So just look again at verses 57 through 62 as we wrap up. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to them, to him, to Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then to another, Jesus actually approaches somebody and says, Follow me. But this person says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then Jesus said, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. We could say it this way Leave those who are dead to the kingdom, or leave those who are spiritually dead, or those who are dead to Jesus to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And we talked about that, what that means in a minute. And in verse 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow, that's an agricultural metaphor yet again. And Jesus is saying, when you put your hand to the plow, or like maybe more to our experience, when you're mowing the yard, if you look back, you get off track. This is an analogy here. And so Jesus, I think, tells us three unique costs of following him. The first is the cost of rejection, and that's Verse 58, someone approaches Jesus to follow him, but Jesus warns him, I have nowhere to lay my head. I've, I've got nowhere to lay my head. This doesn't really refer to like literal homelessness. We know that Jesus had places to stay. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were great friends of Jesus and often extended their house to him. So it's not exactly what he's referring to. What he's, what he's referring to is the loss of respectability and status. It refers to the very thing that he will experience in Jerusalem, rejection. And if we're on this same journey with Jesus, then we should not assume universal affirmation. And so that's the first cost. 
The second cost is, we'll call it the cost of repentance, because this is verse 60. Jesus summons someone, they want to first bury their father. That seems like a very reasonable thing to do. And what Jesus says seems harsh. What Jesus is doing is he's making a point that he's made in other places in the gospel. When you follow him, he becomes your priority relationship. He is first place, and everything finds their place under him. So this is a very memorable way to make that point. I think a helpful definition of idolatry is whenever anything, even a good thing, becomes an ultimate. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, even the best of things is not the ultimate of things. And that is either a ridiculously bold statement or it's an appropriate statement because Jesus is Lord. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If I am the Lord, then everything, even the best of things, find their place under my And that's a cost. That's a cost of discipleship. That means when we follow Jesus, we commit ourselves to a life of constant repentance, of constant searching. What, is, what am I placing above Jesus right now? And then when you, when you notice those things, whether it's status at work, whether it's comfort at home, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're placing above Jesus, what we do in, in discipleship, in this journey of the wilderness, is we purposefully say, Jesus, like I take this thing and I place it underneath you. That's repentance. That's a cost. That's a cost of discipleship. We do it every day. And then finally we see with this third person the cost of what we'll call resolution. So in verse 61, a person wants to say farewell and, 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 and look back. But Jesus said, you can't keep looking back when you're following me. So this is, you have to have the, the same resolve. I'm setting my face to Jerusalem. All my disciples set your face with me. That's a resolve. That's a resolution. When we decide to follow Jesus, we are all in. In other words, we uh, we like to keep our options open, but Jesus says this is something you must let go of. Options will start to close in your discipleship with Jesus, it's like marriage in a way, or any kind of strong commitment. A friend of mine uh, said. The moment he got married was the moment he stopped hanging out at coffee shops until they closed. So, why did he say that? Because marriage was a narrowing, not an enlarging, of his options on weekday nights. But he would never say, and he never did say, that the narrowing of his options was a bad thing. Nor did he insinuate that not being able to hang out at the coffee shop till midnight every single night, reading and writing, was somehow a terrible loss. Instead, this narrowing of options, this resolution that his marriage brought to him was, according to him, a good thing, a great thing, even as there is losses. Even as doors close, 
You see, that's how freedom works. That's how freedom works, biblically defined. It's been said that freedom is not having every open door in your life. But freedom, true freedom, is opening the right doors and closing the wrong doors. Does that make sense? When you look life with just a bunch of open doors, it's actually a backwards kind of slavery. Because you don't really know which to choose, and you become enslaved to your own preferences, and you start to weigh, and you get analysis paralysis, and you just live life just in bondage to your own desires. But instead, when the right doors are opening and the wrong doors are closing, we have a path that narrows, but as that path narrows, we somehow find more freedom. It's like learning scale on a guitar. As the notes narrow, you actually find more freedom when you want to improvise. And that's the life of Jesus, following Jesus. It's a narrow path, as Jesus tells us, but it's a liberating path. Precisely because it is narrow. The narrow path of Jesus closes all the wrong doors and only opens the right doors. And that's how the cost of following Jesus works, too. So these costs, these three costs, in a way, they're a narrowing of our life. But in each of these, the benefits far outweigh the costs. And in fact, with Jesus, the costs actually become benefits. The rejection from the world means the affirmation. If repentance of idols means real freedom in Jesus, that's a win. If a life of resolve means eternal life, that's a win. And that's the journey of Jesus, friends. Once we're in, we're in. Jesus wants you to know that's a very big thing. It's a very big thing. So just right away, while I was preparing for the journey, as we prepare for this journey, we just got to remember this journey with Jesus is shaped like a cross. It's compassion forward. It's costly. But in all three of those things, following Jesus in the wilderness means we have his dust on our face. It means that we're covered. We're covered by him. We're safest behind him. And when we fail him, on that journey. When we wander on that journey, he's the great shepherd who stops with his name and drives us. And when he heads to the Exodus, he dies in our place and rises for our justification so that we would have eternal life. This journey with Jesus, it's not easy. Jesus gives us plenty of warning. But it is good. It is good. Because he is there. Lord, we ask that you would enable us, if we're here this morning, enable us to, to take one more step if we've been walking with you for a while, to continue our journey with you in this wilderness. We're following you these days does feel like a wilderness journey. We don't feel quite comfortable. We're off balance. We don't really know where we're going. And oftentimes we ask, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? 
But in those moments, would you remind us that this narrow path is the best path because you are with us here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.